Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The first cup caresses my dry lips and throat. The second shatters the walls of my lonely sadness. The third searches the dry rivulets of my soul to find the stories of 5,000 scrolls. With the fourth, the pain of life's grievances evaporates through my pores. The fifth relaxes my muscles and bones become light. With the sixth, I find the path that leads to the immortal ancestors. Oh, the seventh cup. Better not take it. If I had it, the only feeling is the fresh wind blowing through my wings as I make my way to Bung Lai. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to begin a series on tea. Yes, tea, the beverage and the plant that it comes from. Now, Rob, you began today's episode by reading a, uh, uh, is this a poem or a song? This is a poem by Lu Tong from the Tang Dynasty titled Seven Bowls of Tea. And it's it's pretty widely cited. I, I ran across uh, various like tea blogs uh, talking about it and sometimes saying that this is overly cited uh, in the, the literature of tea, uh, you know, especially in the West. Uh, and I think with good reason, because it's it's amazing. It's, uh, it, it captures this just intense enthusiasm for tea. And also it's essentially about a man drinking way too much tea during the course of a day that brings him to the to the very brink of like blinking out of physical reality and going to uh, uh, to Ping Lai, the, the mystical mountain where you have fantastic creatures and immortal beings. So you don't want to do the seventh cup because that will just essentially you will leave your body in the place where you currently reside. Right. But it's not it, it doesn't seem to be a case where you have to worry about like crashing with that seventh cup. It's just the seventh cup is one pleasure beyond that which you should grant yourself. Mm-hmm. You should you have to show restraint because you still have stuff to do here in the mortal realm. Well, I like the way that the the poem escalates because at the beginning it's more just about the uh like the first line is about the sensory experience caresses dry lips and throat it's it's happening in the mouth. And then mm-hmm. after that it's like mood, you know, shatters the walls of my lonely sadness. That's mood stuff, that's level 2. But beyond that you're like talking about communing with other beings, the path mm-hmm. that leads to the immortal ancestors. Yeah, it gets very spiritual towards the end. Transformative even. I've never gone six cups in on caffeinated tea, but I, I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I, um, my wife and I probably have, but only through re-steeps. We're big into um, having a, picking out a good tea that you can re-steep several times. Mm. So um, I, I could probably write a similar poem about like you know steeps 
one, one through four or five on a particular tea that I like. Uh, because sometimes you get, a, you get the, you get an interesting tea and it changes like cup, cup one might actually not be the best, uh, cup. Mm. Uh, it's your second or third steep where things maybe, um, become a little more nuanced, a little less sharp. Uh, I found I found that to be the case with some of the Pu'er teas that I really like. I assume does the caffeine content become less powerful as as you go through multiple steeps? That is my understanding, and yeah. I believe that is my experience. Uh, and uh, that's what, one of the reasons I, I tell myself that it's okay to have so many cups of tea during the course of an afternoon mm-hmm. because I'm getting decreased returns on, on that cup from a caffeine standpoint. But yeah, we've touched on tea in the past, we've, but we don't think we've ever done a proper deep dive on this most splendid beverage. Um, it's, it, and not just splendid, but really one of the most popular beverages in the world. You could probably make a case for it being the most popular. Uh, there's a great deal of variety to how it's cultivated, prepared, brewed, and consumed. And yeah, there's no denying its appeal uh, and its importance weaves in and out of global history, various cultures. It factors into mythology, literature, politics, and much, much more. Yes. And to clarify something here, I guess we should do this at the beginning. Uh, there's a little bit of confusion in English. I don't know if it's like this in other languages, but at least in English, there are a lot of things that we call tea that are not made with the tea plant. So we use the word tea as like a generic synonym, basically for an infusion. Anytime you you take a substance, herbal or otherwise, and you expose it to hot water in order to extract some kind of flavor or chemical compounds into the water, and then you drink the water, people will call this a tea no matter what it is. So you've got herbal teas made from everything from like chamomile to turmeric to mint, uh, or even cases where people will, will refer to meat based broths as like beef tea. Uh, but there is all no really, uh, but there is also the specific tea plant, uh, the leaves of which are used to make tea proper. And it is this plant and its eponymous infusion uh, that we're going to be mostly focusing on in these episodes. And obviously, there are various blends that have taken place. There's so many teas available now, especially loose leaf teas, where you'll have like little bits of dried um, um, uh, flavor uh, bits uh, that are not tea, but still the primary ingredient is the dried tea. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think one of the other exciting things about this is, and this is going to be a fun one to hear from listeners, because I know everyone out there, you, you have your own individual story with tea. You probably have your own cultural story with tea. Um, for my own part, I've come to like a number of different teas. Uh, I I, want to also throw out an important uh, caveat that I would not say that I'm like a tea super nerd. You know, I'm not like I'm not a connoisseur of teas. So I'm not going to be speaking from that vantage point in these episodes. But I've grown particularly fond of these Pu'er teas, which we'll discuss in due course. Um, I, I like several things about them. I, I, obviously, I like the various tastes. They often have this kind of dark, earthy, or sometimes it's lighter, but some, there's often an earthy tone to them, um, sometimes compared to, to hay. And and that is a, a flavor profile that I find it works. You get interesting results when you do re-steeps on it mm. uh, because the hay taste might be a bit strong in that first cup, but then cup two or three is generally the, the comfort zone for me personally. I also really love how so many of these particular teas are preserved in bricks or pucks. Uh, sometimes you have to uh, break up uh, the, the brick with a, with a little a little specialized knife, and I like the ritual of that. Uh, I also like it when it's a little puck that's already been prepared, often uh, circular, sometimes heart-shaped uh, today, and, and that can be a lot of fun as well, and also makes it a little handy, easy to get into the tea bag. Rob, I seem to recall you getting very into the idea of uh, some kind of disgusting 19th century way of preparing coffee that involved like brick or puck based concentrate. Am I, am I remembering that right? Oh, no, no, no. I think I, I was interested in the the study of like Civil War era instant coffee. Yeah. Uh, but it, none of it sounded like anything I wanted to even experiment with. Okay. No, no, no. I I just meant that you were interested in the idea, not that like you oh were yeah, yeah hawking its virtues as great coffee. <laughs> no, no. It's just it's interesting history. Like the it, and it kind of speaks to the importance of of caffeinated beverages to the people who consume them. Uh, you'll have situ like war situations where people realize, hey, 
these soldiers need coffee. These soldiers need tea. How do we get that to them? What is the uh, the most cost-effective means of doing so? What happens when the product is bad? Uh, how do the, the soldiers in the field relate to this additional indignity? I also love how tea is like anything else. Uh, there, there's nothing like great branding. I love some of the names of the teas that I have enjoyed. Like there's one called uh, the Bewitched Emperor. There's one called Evil Snake King. And mm. so, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, obviously these are just, just the labels given to these. And these are the English. Uh, I think th- these are translations, though, of what they're actually called in, uh, in the case of these two in China as well. But uh, I just love the idea that is wrapped up in the branding for these as well. It makes me feel like I'm I'm not only enjoying an afternoon cup of tea, but I'm engaging in something possibly supernatural. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say that I sense no other beverage to have as rich an array of supernatural associations as tea. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Like there's just there's there's so it's one of the things that's interesting, but also could probably be intimidating at times is you get into not just tea culture, but various tea cultures uh, that all have various practices of uh, uh, how you're supposed to prepare it, how you're supposed to consume it and so forth. I mean, matcha uh, from Japan is, of course, a great example of this. Um, and uh, and just on its own can be a wonderful tea. Uh, yeah, there, there are just so many, so many fascinating teas out there. We're going to touch on some of the, the, the tea cultures as we proceed uh, through these episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but how about you, Joe? What's your, uh, your personal story with tea? Well, I am not really a tea drinker, not because I dislike tea. I mean, uh, when, when I have it, I enjoy it. But I think it's because... For me personally, there is simply not room for additional caffeine in my life. I have my, <laughs> my morning coffee routine, and I have to be very careful even with that, because if I have too much coffee, I will spend the rest of the day and night having visions of the doom of all and just you know, <laughs> hear the screams of a dying planet. Like, I, I get the fear bad. And it's strange I wasn't always like that. I can think years back, I used to hang out with my friends, and drink cup after cup of coffee, and I was fine. Something happened to me, and now I I cannot handle that much caffeine. It just wrecks me. So after I've had my daily coffee, I do not have tolerance for anything else. No no tea proper, no no second or third cup, whatever. Uh, so in order to do caffeinated tea, I think I would have to do a full switch out and have it instead of coffee, which I've never tried to do. Uh, but occasionally I do enjoy non-tea teas. I like some herbal teas, lemon ginger infusions and stuff. And I guess they do make decaffeinated tea, but I've just never gone down that path. Mm, yeah, yeah. I'm like you in that I can't quite put aside the morning coffee. Uh, I've gotten it down to just two cups of coffee, my initial wake-up cup, and then the, the second cup of coffee. And then everything after that for me is tea. Generally, it's one tea bag, multiple steeps of said tea bag. Mm-hmm. And it's worth keeping in mind when thinking about the, the caffeine. Now, this is just general, and this is may, maybe can't be applied completely across the board. But generally speaking, a cup of coffee, a standard cup of coffee, is going to have somewhere between 100 and 120 milligrams of caffeine. Meanwhile, a cup of black tea is going to have 40 milligrams of caffeine. Green tea is going to have 30. Green and white tend to have the least amount of caffeine, followed by oolong. These numbers are pointed out by Laura C. Martin, whose excellent book, A History of Tea, is one of the, the sources I'm going to keep coming back to in these episodes. Hmm. Okay, so even if I did try to incorporate uh, some tea into my daily routine, it would not be equivalent to drinking the same volume of coffee. Yes, that that seems to be the case. Now, that, that being said, there are so many ways to prepare tea, and certainly you could drink enough tea. You could drink those six fresh steeps of tea and mm. risk uh, transporting yourself to the Mystic Mountain. So it's always, always yeah. a possibility. And everybody's different. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think our relationship with caffeine does change as we age. So naturally, yeah, you don't have to be a total tea nerd or immersed to any degree within the, an Eastern culture of tea to be into tea because tea has spread around the globe by this point. Tea culture now encompasses everything from British high tea to southern sweet iced tea, uh, Taiwanese bubble tea to things like uh, Senegalese um, tea and their, you know, their uh, Tibetan um, uh, tea preparation methods that are also rather distinct. And again, we'll come back to, to some examples of these later on. But uh, I thought an interesting place to start might be to, instead of starting with 
the familiar or even anything in the actual real world, we might start off by getting into uh, the mythological origins of tea. Even before we get into the botanical realities of tea, we might start in just purely mythic and I think mostly Chinese mythological origins for this splendid beverage. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we're getting into a myth about a psychoactive substance and its ancient Chinese myth, are we going to meet the divine farmer once again? Yes, uh, yes, we will. Because, of course, if it involves something that you should eat or shouldn't eat <laughs> and is a plant of some sort, then, yeah, uh, the divine farmer, Shinong, has to show up. Shinong, putting things in his mouth for everybody's benefit. That's right. Yes, we've we've talked about Shenong before on the show. He's a pretty important figure in Chinese mythology, and he's tied to myths concerning various botanical substances. Um, his name literally means divine farmer. He's a culture bearer, a god. Um, he's attributed with the invention of agriculture and the introduction of agriculture to human beings. Uh, he's an important name in Chinese medicine. He's said to have invented various farm tools and musical instruments. Uh, so. So there's a lot that this mythological figure is attributed with. And, you know, obviously, as a mythological figure, he is sort of summing up and condensing a lot of the things that actual human beings did over the course of generations, figuring out which plant has a, a medicinal property or seems to, which plant is good to eat, which plant will kill you, that sort of thing. You should definitely look up some images of him because he's he's often depicted as this kind of squat older man with bovine or ox-like characteristics, often kind of wide-set eyes. And, and even one of my favorite things about him is he often has these kind of nub-like horns. Mm -hmm. Now, I have seen depictions, I think these are more modern, but it could be wrong, where he has like full-blown horns. Like a, like a horned deity. But generally, it's these kind of nubs where he looks just, again, very, very bovine. Would you call them buds? Are those called buds? Yeah, they kind of look like like buds. Yeah, like if you don't know what you're looking at, you might say, well, well why does that man have two bumps on his head? Uh, and it's because it's invoking this kind of ox-like characteristics, uh, characteristic of the character. And in some tales, he was said to have had the head of a dragon, others the head of an ox. And so we do have to remember that he is a god, of course. So it's natural that he might have some uh, qualities like this. Mm-hmm. There are various tales about his birth, including some traditions that relate his uh, incredible um, rate of maturity. Uh, one version said that he could talk at three days old. He had all of his teeth, etc. And in some accounts, his father was an actual dragon. Wait, when you said had all of his teeth, you meant he was like born with all of his teeth or he had all of his teeth when he was three days old? His memory serves, and I believe this is uh, related in the book Chinese Mythology by Yang An and Turner. Uh, there's tales that's like, all right, at, at three days he had this, at four days he had this. So he's just maturing at a rapid rate where at like three months old, he knows everything about agriculture and he's able to teach it to humanity. Okay. But the basic story with Shinong concerning plants is that he not only gave humans the knowledge of, of agriculture, he also sussed out which plants were useful in medicine and which ones were food and also which ones were poison. And he did this, of course, by testing them all himself. Uh, in some tellings, he's not actually eating them. He's thrashing them with a reddish-brown whip, like a whip that is, um, and, and there's a lot you can get into with the symbolism of it. I've seen that it's uh, there's something to it uh, that, that this is kind of the, the color of dried blood. Um, other times he has a cauldron. Uh, so yeah, in some cases he says to have you know some tools that he's using, but in many tellings and certainly many artistic interpretations, he's testing all of these various botanicals out by eating them. And then afterwards, he passes judgment. He's like, okay, this, this is a plant that uh, would be good for medicine, so I'm going to put it into my right-hand bag. Uh, this one is good for food, so it's going into my left-hand bag. And he sorts it generally like that. So what about the ones that are poisonous? Um, I, he, there's one tale where if something's poisonous, he just wants to stop it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I think there's a story that's related about uh, ginger, where originally ginger was said to be poisonous. And Shinong took a look at it. He, he, like, he checked it out and he's like, yeah, this is horrible. I want to stomp on it as well. And then ginger had to change in order to be accepted. And that's when ginger went underground. Oh, 
beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, I, I want to explore that one more at some point because I don't really understand all the meaning going on there, but it's 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 interesting. Now, I don't know if we've talked about this uh, uh, version of the story with Shinong before, but as Yang An and Turner point out in Chinese mythology, some versions also state that uh, Shinong is particularly good at figuring all of this out because he has a crystal stomach and he can see everything that's going on inside of his own internal organs as he's digesting things. He's like Tobor. He's, they open up his, his stomach and they can look inside and see see all the parts working. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I love it. I definitely picture this as kind of like almost some sort of an android body that he has going on underneath his, his robes here. That he can pull it up and yeah, it's just crystal organs under crystal skin. And he can observe all, every little detail going on in digestion. So in some versions of the story, the first plant uh, he was said to taste was a green leaf which uh, once he put it in his mouth and swallowed it, it went on a grand tour of his insides, cleaning up everything along the way. And again, crystal stomach, so he gets to watch it go. Okay, so it's kind of like a dryer sheet or something. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, This particular plant was referred to as cha, which means to inspect, which eventually got confused in later tellings with cha, which is the exact same phonetic sound uh, but a different Chinese character. So the story becomes later on that uh, Shinong was poisoning himself upwards of 70 times a day, testing out the world's plants to determine which ones we could use for various purposes. And if something got on top of him, he got some poison going around in his system, he would turn to the cleansing power of tea to detoxify himself. Oh, so by the way, you should not derive uh, actual use value from from that. But yeah, so in this version of the story, tea is like a universal antidote. Right. And my understanding, too, is that older versions of the story are not referring to tea, but Mm. it becomes tea in later tellings of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, though, though there is, uh, this eventually catches up with him. Um, I was reading in, the, the, in that book that uh, one day he is said to have tried a yellow flower. And upon trying the yellow flower, it broke his intestines into pieces. Oh. So I guess he sees this through his stomach, his crystal stomach. Uh, this occurs the, just the moment he swallows it. And he's quickly trying to you know, get himself some tea so he can cleanse everything up. But it is too late. He dies. And the plant... Uh, that d- that does this to him becomes known as the intestine breaking weed. That is brutal in so many ways, especially because it imagines the intestines as brittle rather than uh, elastic. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you could think of them that way. Uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, again, it makes me personally think of Shinong's crystal organs as being like glass, uh-huh. and then the shattering is kind of like when a cartoon character bites on uh, on something that's too hard and their teeth do that that cartoon shattering thing uh-huh. that's what i picture in my mind happening to shinong here poor shinong yeah shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies what was your experience like yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, there's a book, uh, Shinong's Herbal Classic, a later Han Dynasty book that includes a great deal of knowledge related to various botanical substances. And this book is attributed to Shinong, likely based on oral traditions. It includes a passage on tea telling us that it's bitter and shares some details about when, how, and where it grows best. But as Laura C. Martin points out in History of Tea, references to tea in this book were probably not original to it, as the the character for tea itself didn't come into usage until uh, 7th century. Uh, but more on the timeline of tea in a bit, uh, because we're still for now in the mythic timeline. Uh, okay, but talking about this book attributed to Shinong, the idea is that uh, probably there were earlier versions of the book that did not have the tea passages, right. and in recopying through the years, tea passages were inserted by some editor or copyist. Exactly, yes. Now, there are a couple of other tea-related myths here. This is one that Young, Ahn, and Turner uh, point out. It's a creation myth of the Diang ethnic people known outside of China as the, the Paloang people in Yunnan province. And it's said that in, in this creation myth, 102 tea leaves went around and around in the air for 30,000 years and then transformed into 51 young men and 51 young women. That's the beginning of humanity. Hmm. Now, there's another one. This is, a, this is a tea myth that largely emerges from India rather than China. As Martin points out, the early history of tea centers around China, but the plant is indigenous to the Assam region of India, in addition to southwestern China. Uh, yet it seems that it was little known or used in India prior to the 6th century CE. And if you don't know where it is, Assam is located in uh, northeastern India. So the the area of origin for the tea plant, we think, is basically southwestern China, northeastern India. Yeah, yeah. Though it, it does seem like it was better known in China mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to India. But, of course, we see a, a fair amount of cultural exchange between India and China. And, of course, the most famous example of this is, of course, Buddhism. And this particular uh, story does involve Buddhism as well. It's the story of Bodhidharma, who was a 5th century semi-legendary Indian prince who, much like the Buddha himself a thousand years earlier, came to see the emptiness of wealth and abandoned all of it in the quest for enlightenment. He became a Buddhist monk, and after many years of study, he travels to China to reintroduce Buddhism. 
uh, and found uh, Buddhism had been introduced into China previously, but this was a period where maybe it was waning a bit. And uh, he said to end up becoming the founder of Chan Buddhism in the process. But while he's in China, after visiting the emperor on this trip, he retreats to a Shaolin temple. And here he begins a long period of devoted meditation and asceticism. So depending on the tale, and again, there are different versions uh, with this as with most of these stories, he either stares at a wall for nine years in meditation, or he gives up sleep for nine years so that he can really double down on his meditation. In one version of the story, he grows so sleepy that he reaches out and he grabs a leaf, like a random leaf, and he just shoves it in his mouth to chew it as a way to perk himself up. And his luck would have it, this plant is tea, and it really does perk him up because, it, as we'll discuss in a bit, it, it contains a stimulant. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another version of this tale, and this one um, I got in trouble for sharing at the dinner table uh, in my post-research excitement. But oh, in no. this other version, he's getting sleepy, and he pulls off his own eyelids because it's like, oh, my, you know, heavy eyelids, they keep shutting. I'm trying to meditate, but I keep falling asleep. So he just pulls the eyelids off, throws them on the ground. And then a tea plant grows from where the, uh, the eyelids fall. So in either case, according to these, these, this legendary account, he discovers tea and passes it on to the other monks to assist them in their meditation. All right, so that's just a taste of some of the, the mythological stories involving the origin of tea, this spectacular plant that is either discovered or, or perhaps even created out of some sort of uh, inspired insight by a legendary or semi-legendary individual. Now, when it comes to the tea plant itself, I uh, there were a few things that I actually did not know until recently. I don't know if I should be embarrassed about not knowing these, but I, I was just pretty much in the dark about tea. Uh, but one thing I discovered was that apart from the issue of things being called tea just actually being an infusion of anything, even when you're talking about the tea plant itself, I previously thought that the main varieties of tea you hear about, like green tea and black tea or maybe oolong tea, were from different plants. But actually, these are all from the same plant as far as I can tell. They're just different preparation and curing methods, correct? Yeah, yeah. They're essentially, we're talking about one single species of plant, Camellia sinensis. Camellia sinensis is an evergreen shrub or tree, and we'll, uh, you know, asterisks there, we'll get to that, that produces small white-petaled flowers. In the wild, it will eventually reach tree size, but in, in situations where it's been cultivated, generally they're kept at a shrub size via pruning. Uh, they're typically kept at like a meter or three feet in height, as that's an ideal height for picking. Yeah, and so you have these top layers of leaves that come out, and I think they refer to those as flushes, like the leaves keep uh, uh, protruding, and then the top young leaves are harvested. Yeah, and while we're essentially talking about one species, there are two varieties. There's Camellia sinensis. This is the one that's indigenous to western Yunnan and China. And then there's a variety of that, Camellia sinensis assamica. This is indigenous to the Assam region of India, as well as parts of Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and southern China. Mm -hmm. Now, these uh, two varieties, they cross-pollinate easily, so they're also blends of the two. But Martin stresses that they're, they're actually not that different in taste either. So the varying tastes and colors of different teas, they stem from the way we process them, whether you're talking about black or green, or oolong, etc. And so either variety of tea leaf processed the same way will basically be similar, but at the same time, we don't want to discount traditions surrounding particular teas. Um, it's one of those things, it's kind of like, uh, you know, wine tasting, any kind of like uh, cultural food tradition. There's a lot tied up in knowing where something comes from as well. And mm -hmm. some of that trans translates into, the, into the, the taste for the average consumer. Sometimes it's something that translates into the, uh, the connoisseur's taste experience. And sometimes you're getting into an area where, yes, you're being primed that this, uh, this particular, I don't know, um, uh, you know, th th this wine stems from this vintage versus this uh, vintage, this winery versus this winery, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of 
different foods that maybe you actually couldn't tell the difference in in a blind taste test. But then again, it might be cool to enjoy an authentic version of something knowing the history behind it, like knowing where it comes from and being able to think about that and so forth. Exactly. So in the wild, tea plants are generally going to thrive in an open woodland area or on the edge of the woodlands where they can benefit from the shade of larger trees. As such, when cultivating tea plants, they're generally grown alongside shade trees. Uh, These, as Martin points out, not only provide shade, but also uh, it keeps weeds away and enriches the soil. And uh, generally the leaves and the buds are are what are harvested. Fresh leaves generally contain about 4% caffeine, I'm reading. And I was wondering about this because I had read that uh, it is, uh, maybe we can get more into this when we do some of the cultural history, but I had read that tea leaves were traditionally treated as a food plant in China Mm -hmm. more so than a beverage plant, and the beverage uh, uh, stage came later. And so apparently you can eat tea leaves. You can just prepare them like a green and and chew them up and eat them. Uh, People do this sometimes, and it's fine, though you need to be careful about how much you eat, obviously, because you don't want to overdose yourself on caffeine. Right, right, because most of us don't have crystal clear guts that we can look at and and uh, determine what's happening, um, you know, by the moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that'll be fun to get into in a subsequent episode. Uh, the, the 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 history of tea as a beverage is also the history of a food. Uh, so the, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But coming back to the caffeine, this is a question that applies, of course, to tea, but also to other caffeinated beverages, uh, or at least ones that have a natural origin. Like, why is there caffeine in the leaf? Like, what what is there? Why, why is that substance that uh, that for us humans is a stimulant that kind of manipulates us as a consumer of the plant? Like, why is it even there to begin with? Great question. So, as a jumping off point to answer this, uh, I wanted to refer to uh, an article I was reading on the subject by previous show guest Carl Zimmer, who is uh, one of our favorite science writers. He's He's uh, been a guest on the podcast before. Maybe we'll get him back again someday. Uh, but he came on to talk about his book on genes and heredity called uh, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, which is a fantastic book. And so Carl Zimmer had an article in 2014 in the New York Times called How Caffeine Evolved to Help Plants Survive and Help People Wake Up. And he begins by pointing out some rough stats about the popularity and power of coffee and caffeine, saying that the world consumes roughly 26,000 cups of coffee per second. That's a lot. Uh, that caffeine is probably the most widely used psychoactive substance in the world. But there's an interesting thing about caffeine, which is that it has a number of different uh, associated plants uh, that it comes from. So, for example, there are coffee beans. Coffee beans are the seeds of a genus of flowering plant called coffea or uh, coffea in the family uh, rubiaceae. These plants are native to tropical Africa and tropical Asia. There is, of course, tea. Tea, again, is made from the leaves of the evergreen shrub Camellia sinensis, which is native to East Asia. There's mate made from the yerba mate plant, which is a holly shrub native to South America, scientific name Ilex paraguariensis. And then uh, you've even got chocolate. Chocolate also contains caffeine. Uh, chocolate's made from seeds of the cacao tree or theobroma cacao. Uh, theobroma, by the way, means food of the gods, theobroma. Mm. Uh, and historically uh, was not always used as an ingredient in sweets and desserts the main way we in the United States consume it today. It was often consumed as a bitter, hot, or cold beverage, kind of similar to how we consume coffee, which, of course, would have carried a punch of caffeine, and chocolate does have caffeine. I think our uh, invention episode where we uh, talked to Jeff Beachbone Berry uh, we talked a little bit about um, um, uh, ancient uh, recipes for hot chocolate, essentially. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of interesting to look at this geographic distribution and say, how do all of these different plants that are not closely related to one another independently make this same compound? We know why humans like caffeine, but what does caffeine do for the plants and how did all these diverse different species evolve to make it? Well, this article looks at a study published in the journal Science in 2014, where researchers detailed an effort to sequence the genome of a species of coffee plant responsible for many of the world's coffee beans. This, uh, remember, coffee comes from the genus uh, Coffea or Coffea, and this is uh, Coffea canifora. The study is by uh, France, um, oh, I do not know how to pronounce this last name, D-E-N-O. E-U-D is how the name is spelled, uh, et al. And the uh, title is The Coffee Genome Provides Insight into the Convergent Evolution of Caffeine Biosynthesis. Again, that's in the journal Science 2014. So uh, one thing this study looked at is how caffeine is actually synthesized in coffee plants. And it turns out it is a multi-stage transformation of a molecule that it begins with a compound called xanthazine. And the coffee plant manufactures uh, several enzymes that act on this compound. So one enzyme removes an arm of the molecule. Another enzyme adds a new arm. Two more enzymes come in and add two more clusters of atoms. And after all these transformations, you finally have transformed xanthazine into caffeine. And the enzymes involved in this multi-step transformation are called N-methyltransferases. They are found in all plants, and they do generally this sort of work, building specific compounds, many of which plants use to defend themselves against predators or parasites. 
And uh, one example of a compound manufactured with the help of N-methyltransferases that Zimmer cites in the article is salicylic acid, which is a compound produced by willow trees, which actually turns out to be a potent pain reliever in animals like us. Salicylic acid is the chemical basis for aspirin. Hmm. But what about the enzymes that manufacture caffeine specifically in coffee? Uh, well, uh, the, the authors uh, determined that some time ago in the evolution of the coffee plant, a gene for creating one type of N-methyltransferase enzyme underwent a series of mutations to produce a variety of enzymes which would eventually create caffeine. And so one of the co-authors is quoted in uh, Carl Zimmer's article, say, uh, this is by Victor A. Albert, saying, they're all descendants of a common ancestor enzyme that started screwing around with xanthazine compounds. So the plants are just kind of like doing all these little variations on this originator molecule and producing these derivative molecules that in many cases are physiologically active or psychoactive on animals. And it turns out scientists had already discovered that caffeine was created by the action of N-methyltransferases in cacao trees and in the tea plant. So similar molecular uh, frameworks are going on within coffee plants, within, uh, within the, the tree that makes chocolate or cacao, and within tea plants. However, the researchers also found that the uh, enzymes for, for making caffeine in these different plants did not all evolve from the same ancestors. So this would be a case of convergent evolution, different branches on the tree of life evolving the same solution, the same phenotype independently. Uh, so you can think of a million different examples of this. One is wings. Birds and bees both evolved flapping wings independently for flight. They didn't get them from a common ancestor that had wings. They, you know, their last common ancestor did not have wings and they independently separately came up with the same solution. Now, when you see convergent evolution, when you see different streams of evolution converging on the same trait or the same solution to an environmental problem, it's usually a sign that that trait or solution is pretty good. It's a powerful adaptation and there's a big survival and reproduction payoff. So it would seem, based on the evidence uh, of convergent evolution, that producing caffeine is definitely good for something, for the plants. So what is it really good for? Well, there are a few things we can talk about. One is activity in poisoning or deterring predation by insects. So like so many of the plant-based compounds that humans ingest on purpose for their psychoactive <laughs> properties, caffeine seems to be at least in part useful for deterring predation by insects. Insects would, of course, naturally like to eat the leaves and the, the seeds of the coffee plant, but high levels of caffeine are toxic to them. And this relationship can be seen further uh, in the fact that uh, the fruit fly, Drosophila, Drosophila has the ability to taste the presence of certain compounds. I was reading about how they have an array of at least 68 known, uh, these are called seven transmembrane gustatory receptors, or gustatory receptors are GRs, and uh, gustatory meaning taste. So these gustatory receptors allow the fly to sense the presence of compounds that could kill it or harm it and avoid eating them. Uh, caffeine is one of those compounds. Fruit flies appear to have a suite of receptors, including one called GR66A, that work together to sense the presence of caffeine in whatever they're, they're eating and allow an avoidance response to take over. Now, I think it's interesting to put that together with the fact that in the human experience, most alkaloids taste bitter. Alkaloids are a broad class of nitrogen-bearing organic compounds that plants make, many of which have physiological effects on humans and other animals, effects ranging from, uh, you know, all your standard types of poisoning and death to psychoactive effects, such as the stimulant effect of caffeine. So bitter taste often causes animals to reject a food source. So I think it's kind of reasonable to put all this together and wonder if the sensation of bitterness when ingesting plants rich in alkaloids is uh, perhaps a protective response that tells us to stop consuming these plants and reject them, similar in effect to the way that a fruit fly has the ability to taste and reject caffeine, though with a different evolutionary backstory. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it makes me think of, you know, the, the obvious of um, uh, example of, say, a child being introduced to coffee and finding it disgusting mm-hmm. um, because it is, is bitter. Uh, and, um, you know, and also we have to think about the fact that, you know, that, that chocolate unsweetened has a very bitter taste to it as well. Though, of course, in both cases, coffee and chocolate, uh, there is, of course, a process involved here uh, that we're not going to really get into with coffee and, uh, and chocolate between plant and, and even the unsweetened food product. Uh, but that's something we could come back to in the future. I'd love to do something on chocolate, say, in the future. Absolutely. And yeah, it's interesting to think about the complex human reaction or response to bitterness, that it seems bitterness is probably primarily biologically relevant in getting us to reject foods. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this has something in it that I don't want to get too much of, so I probably don't want to eat too much of this. Yeah, so many of the naturally occurring pesticides <laughs> that we consume, uh, yeah, they have some sort of a strong flavor that would tend to convince most humans to avoid them, certainly in, in, in many of the cases where there are various spices, avoid them in larger quantities than we traditionally use them. And yet we can really get a taste for them. I mean, I mm-hmm. like the bitter taste of coffee and of chocolate and of tea and so forth. It might have to do with like it's a level of bitterness that doesn't reach kind of a threshold at which you would find it disgusting. Like it's like below the the bar for rejection or it could be a totally it could be a learned response. I mean, maybe naturally people don't like bitter stuff in any quantity. But if culturally they learn to appreciate it, I, I don't know, maybe maybe that's what's uh, making the, the difference there. Oh, I mean, in, in cocktail culture, for example, you. You have a, a you know, whole spectrum of bitter drinks. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you're just adding a little bitter taste via bitters in many cases to um, to to offset sweetness and give a you know a certain flavor profile. But some people go especially hard for those those bitter drinks. Uh, they're like I've never tried one of these, but you have these uh, recipes floating around for mixed drinks that contain like multiple bitter components to try and create like some sort of uber bitter concoction, which is not for me, but I, I, I assume is for some people who have developed a taste for all of those bitter components. Well, I mean, I do think about how many of the bitter food, I, almost all of the really enjoyable bitter foods and beverages I can think of are psychoactive in one way or another. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. not like, you know, bitter greens or, you know, I like greens that can be bitter. But uh, I think of coffee, which has caffeine. I think of chocolate, which has caffeine. I think of tea, which has caffeine. Or I think of alcoholic beverages that are bitter, like, uh, you know, like uh, hoppy beers and so forth. Yeah. So it's almost like on some level our body's saying, this tastes bad, but something good is happening. Yeah. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. 
It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But okay, so caffeine, uh, one of its roles within a plant might be to deter insects or other animals, maybe from eating the leaves of the plant. If they've got enough caffeine in there, one way or another, the toxicity of the caffeine will drive the animal away. Another interesting idea that Zimmer raises in this article is that caffeine in coffee plants is suspected to work also by inhibiting the growth and germination of other plants. Hmm. He writes that uh, when coffee leaves die and fall off of a coffee plant. They fall down to the soil below. The caffeine content seeps into the earth and interferes with the ability of other plant species in the soil nearby to germinate. So this helps limit competition for soil resources and sunlight in the area. Now, uh, I didn't find anything specifically about whether or not that's true with tea plants as well, but it could also be the case uh, if, if it works for the coffee plant. But one thing where I did find a parallel between uh, how they think caffeine is working in coffee plants and tea plants is its role in pollination. I thought this was the most interesting of all. So in addition to deterring insect or animal predation and perhaps limiting competition from nearby plants, uh, the psychoactive and drug-like properties of caffeine on animals might be not only an unintended byproduct or side effect of their physiological activity as a deterrent, they might actually be in part the point of the compound, or at least one of the points of the compound, and it would work like this. So coffee and uh, flowering plants that produce caffeine in their leaves also produce lower doses of caffeine in their nectar. Hmm. Now, plants make nectar as a food for insects, as an incentive for insects to spread their pollen. You know, so the insect gets sugar from the plant, it gets a meal, and the plant gets help with reproduction and dispersal in return. It gets help spreading its genetic material. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Research has shown that when insects feed on plant nectar containing low doses of caffeine, they seem to become more disposed to remember the scent of the flower where they consumed that nectar. And researchers believe this may cause the insect to return to that flower more often and mm. thus spread its pollen more effectively. So maybe out of just one compound, this one molecule that the plant creates, it can be getting multiple completely different effects depending on the dosage in the different part of the plant. So maybe higher levels in the leaves will deter uh, insects from trying to eat the leaves, but lower levels in the nectar will be more like a cup of coffee for the insect, which <laughs> kind of like uh, boosts the insect's uh, memory and allows it to return to the same plant more frequently and spread that plant's genetic material. Toxic in high concentration, but beneficial to some types of brain function at lower doses. Uh, and it's funny that caffeine has the same dual effect on humans. I mean, if you have too much of it, it will kill you. But if you have mm -hmm. these low doses of it that people consume in beverages and stuff, people use it directly as a stimulant to improve their brain function. 
Yeah, I mean, coming back to Shinong, the mythical um, story here, it's basically uh, an individual god figuring out to what degree one should consume the world of poisons around us. Mm-hmm. Like, how much of this poison is appropriate for desired outcome? Um, and then which poisons should we not mess with at all? Exactly. So th- th- I found this so interesting. But anyway, this was all about the coffee plant. I was trying to find, is the same thing true of the tea plant? And I did, in fact, find a study from just a couple years ago. It was from 2021, published in the Journal of Insect Physiology. It was by Jiwen Gong et al. And it was called Floral Tea Polyphenols Can Improve Honeybee Memory Retention and Olfactory Sensitivity. So uh, the background on the study is to read from their abstract quote, Animal pollinated plants face a common problem how their defensive anti-herbivore compounds may impair or alter pollinator behavior. Evolution has tailored multiple solutions, which largely involve pollinator tolerance or manipulation to the benefit of the plant, not the removal of these compounds from pollen or nectar. The tea plant, Camellia sinensis, is famous for the caffeine and tea polyphenols that it produces in its leaves. However, these compounds are also found in its nectar, which honeybees readily collect. So to summarize here, the authors tested the effects of these two different products of the tea plant, the, uh, of the caffeine and the tea polyphenols, uh, and uh, they tested it on the foraging behavior of honeybees. And what they say they found is that honeybees preferred simulated nectar from a feeder when it contained T. polyphenols over a control feeder that did not contain them. And they also found that bees that were fed on a feeder laced with caffeine showed small improvements in learning. Both caffeine and T. polyphenols increased memory retention and showed influences on other behaviors as well, such as like response to alarm pheromones. So it seems that the tea plant may well be adapted to give pollinating insects small doses of caffeine and T. polyphenols for a reason. It could mean, among other things, that the pollinating insects are more likely to keep returning to the same plant and spreading its genetic material. And I thought this was so interesting. So if this is, in fact, the case, uh, it's it's a more complex relationship than I usually imagine between plants and the, the alkaloids that they manufacture and the animals that they target. Because I usually think of the relationship as a pretty simple one-way interaction, like the The plant alkaloid causes some kind of negative physiological response or reaction in the animal, and then the animal is deterred from eating the plant again. Or the animal is driven to evolve like gustatory receptors or taste that make the plant taste nasty from the first bite because, you know, its ancestors that didn't have that may have died. But this is a more complex implied relationship. I don't know exactly what to compare it to. I mean, uh, it's almost like the cultivating of an of an analog of an addiction, but one with, uh, uh, I don't know, survival benefits for the bee as well, because it allows them to uh, keep returning to a food source. So before we, we got into all this here, I if, if I were put to the test, I would have just said, well, caffeine in plants is just about keeping some things from eating them, and we've managed to manipulate that situation for our own benefit. But yeah, it sounds like the reality is a lot more complicated. Of course, you can't really think about purpose and design and desire in the literal sense when it comes to the evolution of something like this in in various plant species. But I, I am kind of reminded of how some products in the human world will end up with more than one purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, I, I think of bag balm. Have you, have you ever used bag balm or seen a container bag ball? I don't think so. Explain. Uh, it's like a little green pin, and uh, I believe it dates back to about 1899, and it was it's a salve to put on a cow's udders after milking. Hmm. But people started using it because they realized that, hey, you can put this on dry, cracked skin. And so uh, I, I, it's one of these things where it ended up being there's this whole additional application of the product, an entire different consumer base that kind of sprang out of it. It's more complicated, obviously, with the, the case with caffeine and plants, but it's almost it, it almost feels like that, where there may be one purpose that's kind of driving uh, the evolution of this, but then this other use, this other way that it uh, uh, can enhance the survivability of the, of the plant uh, emerges as well. And so you have these sort of dual forces driving it at that point. 
Oh, yeah. Evolution loves to repurpose pre-existing morphologies. So like a structure Mm -hmm. or a a chemical capacity or something that evolved initially for one reason can always be repurposed when a new opportunity presents itself. Yeah. And I don't know specifically what the order would have been in any of these cases, uh, whether you're talking about coffee plants or, or, or tea plants. But you can imagine a compound. Initially, there is uh, evolutionary pressure favoring the enzymes to produce that compound because it, I don't know, because it deters predation by animals or because it limits competition when the leaves fall into the soil. And then later, something like this relationship with pollinators emerges using the same compound. And then eventually this relationship with, with human beings who start cultivating it. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to think about all of these relationships. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode, but we'll be back in the next episode with more discussion of tea. In the meantime, of course, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I have some tidbit I want to share about tea, but but surely Robert and Joe don't want to hear it. No, we want to hear it. Write in. <laughs> we want to know about your individual or cultural uh, differences and, um, and and appetite for tea. If there uh, if there are other myths or legends or folk tales that you've heard about uh, about the origins of tea, uh, write in. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, we'll remind you that stuff to blow your mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. That's uh, that's when we will uh, read messages that come in about these episodes. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And then on Fridays, it's Weird House Cinema time. That's when we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.